Welcome into the Orlando Drummer Podcast, episode 12. Good to see you guys today. We got a fun one planned. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. Awesome. Awesome, man. Yeah, it's been a... Uh... Been a slow week in the drum industry, man. Feels like, um, well, I'll tell you one cool thing that came out. Chris Perprota, um, apparently signed with Minel Stick and Brush, which is dope. Congrats, brother. Ooh. And uh, put out a, what's that video called? Emulation? Emulation? I can't think of the name of it. Anyway, sick video. Oh my God, it's just ridiculous. I was the first comment. I was a little proud of that. But uh, <laughs> the, the Minel Stick and Brush YouTube channel, they're putting out some like original content over there. I have several videos that went out um, on that particular channel. Uh, but yeah, it was cool to see him on there, man. Always a pleasure seeing his videos, man. Well, I'll, I'll jump right into it. We got sure. a loop of the week. Loop of the week. Yeah. All right. What we got this week, brother? Uh, went over to a, quite a popular loop pack. Okay. As Ambient V1. Yeah, oh, for sure. And those are all older loops, too, Ambient V1. Yeah. Yeah. Came out a while ago. I was listening to one of them. Some of these loops have names. Some of them don't. The, the, old, the first 100, maybe 120 loops. Yeah, if you watched the interview with Joe Hodgen last week uh, on, the, on the podcast, or even on the site where the extended interview is, uh, we talked a little bit about that, that the first 100 or so, we named them individually, and then we started doing packs. Um, so yeah, anyone's with names, it's because they're, they're older. older. They're older. older. So this one is Conquest. Conquest. That yeah. is what, that's, I would say my one of my top 10 loops. Yeah. Super fun, isn't it? Yeah, so this one, it weird, the, the melody reminded me of like a City in Color song, and I was okay. like, well, which one is that? And then I found that song. You know, it doesn't necessarily limit your creativity, this loop. It just allows you to practice consistency and groove, which I sure. thought was great. And yeah, yeah. always core concepts to keep, you know, very close to yourself. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, love well, that loop. Let's let them hear it. This is Conquest from the Ambient V1 loop pack. actually went back and re-recorded um, several of those because the demos for some of those loops that were that old were on the Sonar Safari in the old studio, recorded through a little mixer. Man, that was like a rough setup. So yeah, I went back and in this <laughs> studio, re-recorded some of them. But yeah, that's Ambient V1. And of course, you don't have to buy any of the loops to use them. Um, you can stream all of them through the apps, offline playback through the apps. You can stream them without internet. Entire library of 300 plus drumless tracks is included with a membership to orlandodrummer.com. And you can use code ODPC and save 25% on your first two months. We'd love to have you on board. Come check it out. That's our that's our plug for the week, as always. That's the only <laughs> sponsor we'll ever have on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Cool. Let's move into Player Puzzle. Player Puzzle, man. Fun one. These are, these are super fun. Hey. I had a lot of fun editing the ones from, from last week. It's... Uh, it was funny, man. You picked such good clips, but I got I got them both. I got them both, but respect oh, for the effort, you it know. It was cheating on your <laughs> part. Uh, if you're not familiar with Player Puzzle, uh, basically with so many drummers out there, it's hard to tell the difference, but some stand out so well that they're absolutely recognizable. In Player Puzzle, we'll provide three hints to see if Adam can guess who's playing. Let's see if we can stump him. All right. So, Player Puzzle number one. What's our audio file called here? LDB. LDB. Let's play this one, player puzzle number one.
So, ah, that's a little tricky. It sounds like a Kaz Rodriguez song, but a lot of people play his songs, right? He's got a ton of really, really cool drumless play-alongs, but they're 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 like songs. They're not like they're not loops. They're like highly produced songs. Sounded like one of his songs. So I'm going through the list of drummers who have played to his tracks, but that's tricky because there's a lot of people, and I'm also not closed off to the idea that it could be him playing. But I heard a couple mannerisms that weren't quite his. That's the, uh, that's a tough mm. one. That's tough. Okay, what's our next hint for this one? The middle name of the man this drummer performs for is Winslow. The middle name of the man he performs for. So we're trying to figure out the artist he performs for, and it's something Winslow something. Ugh. That's a, that's a tough one. Mm. So I'm just going to keep going down the Kaz road. He plays for Josh Groban. Been in one of the shows, actually. Thanks for having us out, Kaz. That was awesome. Really, really cool show. Josh Winslow Groban? I don't know if that's correct or not. Hmm. I might be going down the wrong road here. I'm not sure. Okay. We got to do got to do a kit photo. So it's, it's LBA, not LBB. LBA. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I'm seeing I'm seeing Tama pedals. I'm seeing some electronics. I'm seeing Roland stuff. I'm trying to get a bunch of many clues as I can. So this is from a live performance with a pretty big band. There's a lot of gear and stuff all around here. A lot of electronics. All Zildjian. Looks like a Tama kit. Zildjian Tama plus the electronics. Yeah, I think my best guess is going to be Brother Kaz Rodriguez. It is Kaz Rodriguez. It's Kaz Rodriguez. It is Kaz Kaz Rodriguez. (laughs) Fellow CTM artist as well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Kaz is a hell of a producer, man. Talented guy. Crazy talented. For sure. Um, That was him jamming to one of his tracks. Little solo section. His tracks are really recognizable. He uses a lot of specific synth tones and stuff yep. that you can you can kind of tell. But man, who's used his tracks? Like Chris Coleman, Annika, uh, Aaron Spears. I mean, like a bunch of A-listers, heavy hitters use Kaz tracks um, because they're they're. I don't know. They're. It's interesting to have like high level like fusion ish music that is intended to be drumless. I mean, not a lot of people are doing that. Mm-hmm. You can find high level fusion music, but good luck getting the drums taken out of it and then having the author allow you to use it for a drum performance video, right? So that's why yeah. you see a lot of them on different performance videos for different cymbal companies, things like that. Yeah, if you guys don't know Kaz, man, absolutely check him out. Killer player, too. It's weird that being such a good drummer is just like only part of the reason that he's well-known, right? Part of his success is because of he's really good at drums, but not yeah. all of it, you know? Yeah, and it's funny that like you're pointing out all the different things on his kit. He has one of the most unique kit setups I've ever setup. seen. A bunch of hybrid stuff, a bunch of like weird cymbal choices. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Tama drums, just pretty stuff. Yeah, I think he also, he he's one of those players where his choices in gear do fit his playing very well. Like, I, Tama makes a lot of sense for him. Almost like, I don't know, I look at Tama as like very punchy, very aggressive sounding drums. I think people that play aggressive styles fit Tama very well. They just have like a bite to them. So they work with like heavier handed people and a little bit more choppy, you know what I mean? They're shorter, they don't sustain and sing quite as long. Uh, at least that's not how I, I interpret like the Tama sound. Uh, so I think like Garska is another good example. Like he sounds like, like Tama is the right sound for that kind of playing, like very busy, very, very, um, uh, 
what's the word? I don't know, like just more aggressive, everything like that. And Kaz is a very aggressive yeah. drummer too. I think his tom is always sound dope. Yeah, he's a he plays a hyperstar or superstar kit, something like a that. A superstar, that's extra punchy too. Yeah, if, if it's a superstar, and I got think it the... is. It is a superstar because he. I think he made a joke in one interview where he was like, "I play a superstar kit and I play for a superstar." And yeah, the corny dad joke, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Josh Groban is a is a baller, man. He is. Uh, that's one talented dude. We had to see him at like this. It was somewhere in downtown Orlando. I can't remember the name of the place. Beecham. No, not Beach. Oh, Dr. Phillips Arts Center. The oh, yeah. newer. The Performing Arts the Center. Performing Arts Center. Man, that place is nice. Pretty. Very nice. And new, too. It got built in the last few years. Uh, yeah, it got remodeled within the last five years or so. It's one of the best venues in Orlando. It's Oh, it was super sick. Yeah. Uh, really, really cool experience going there for like a very... A very like intimate, classy show. Everybody's sitting. Yeah. It's you know, it was um, felt like going to like an opera theater kind of place. But yeah, it was a really, really cool setup. And I'm sure Kaz and that whole crew are anxious to get get back on the road, man. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, that was a good one. Cool. All right, we couldn't stump you this one. Let's see if the next one can. Okay. Uh, this is the audio file is pennies. Pennies. Okay. Let's play this one. Player puzzle two. drummer styles in it. Hmm. I heard a lot of influences in there. I heard like the Proprota, Dan Mayo, like a drunk swing, hi-hat Yeah. But then I heard almost like Grebish style triplets and then a little bit of like like some of those some of those patterns down the kid and back up felt like a Yost nickel thing but I'm not sure because Yost I feel like I'd be able to hear a mile away but he's a chameleon he's kind of like a Benny right like he could just sound like however he wants to sound and trick you in a player puzzle so man I really don't have a solid guess off of that one that was a good a good clip maybe we'll play that again um, but let's go to our let's go to our next hint all right so this drummer replaced. Another famous drummer, Steve Smith, mm. in the band Matalex. Matalex. Man, I've never heard of that band. Oh, no. That makes it hard. But following up Steve Smith, you would have to have some sort of name. So that makes this, like, probably not a YouTuber. <laughs> probably somebody a little higher profile. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. We're going to have to do kit photo. So that's also right here, Penny. Okay. Ooh. Sonar Aquarian Minel. Do I see Vic Firths anywhere? That would seal the deal if I could find the Vic Firths. There's a single stick and it's turned down. Can't see it. Oh, man. You know what, though? I'm not sure. Because... Oh, okay. So my my guess, I want to say Yo Snickle, but here's why I'm not sure. I can't think of who he endorses for heads. I don't know that it's Aquarian. Really not sure. I also don't... He does do the splash upside down thing. He does do that where the splash is turned upside down on top of the crash. Mm. But 
Uh, that little stacker, that, that Gen X stacker, I don't recognize that on his setup. Oh, he does do the cowbell in the center. Man, there and, and the ride, too. That's not his normal ride. What do you play? The Spectrum ride? I think Yo Snickle plays the Spectrum ride. This is a tough one. It's a tough one. But I think I'm going to have to go. That's gonna, probably going to be my best guess is going to be Yo Snickle, and I'm not too sure. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yo, Snickle! Yeah. 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 Awesome, yeah. That's a, that was a hard one. That's a hard one for sure. So he's Aquarian, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, I, I love Yo Snickle in his playing. He is, he's, I, I'd have to put him in an underrated category. Like, it's weird when you talk about him and people are like, Yo's too? I'm like, oh my God. Like, yeah. How you, is he not in your top five, you know? Go home, watch several hours of him playing, and yeah, then come man. back and we can talk about him. Mm-hmm. Oh. He's one of those drummers who plays... He plays like, I almost want to say like predictably at some times where mm-hmm. it's like it's always the perfect fill, very tasteful. It's exactly what ought to be played in this spot. But man, he lands things so cleanly. Like the way that he expresses himself on the drums is just phenomenally clean. And another weird, weird thing, if you've ever read either one of his books, he has two books out, which I, I love the concept and title of them it's yost nickels groove book and yost nickels fill book like oh, so yeah. straightforward i own both of them and he has um these really creative mathematical systems um it's it, i don't even want to like give any of it away these are 20 bucks go buy it it's totally worth it even if you just crack it open every couple months and grab a pattern or something but um he's got a concept called like switch grooves in there where it's like it's just like a way to think about how to build grooves and fills. Uh, it's got like little orchestration tricks and these little math games that he implements, like really creative ways to teach and explain and even explore like these groove and fill landscapes. But he's got some killer educational concepts. But I've met Yost a couple times, uh, probably Nam and somewhere else too. But man, just a phenomenal player. And he taught Benny Krebs some things. So need I say more, you know? Not at all. Cool. Also not cool because I wasn't able to stop you. <laughs> um, yeah, Josh Pennies was the name in my notes here, so you didn't see it. <laughs> oh, Nichols the Pennies. Yeah, gotcha, Nichols gotcha. and Pennies. You're good with these code names sometimes. You make them where it's like, it makes sense now, but I wouldn't have figured that it's, out. It's my only chance to write a joke and get a joke in this podcast. So. <laughs> cool. Well, for everybody listening, too, obviously, like, you... You have to codename them because really, like, you'll Dropbox or AirDrop me yeah. these files, and the file has to be named something, and it can't be named the name of the drummer. So it is funny sometimes. We're like, oh, I see what you did there. Pennies, yeah. nickels. I get it. Just a way to make the file naming a little bit more exciting. Yeah. Well, that'll close it out for Player Puzzle. All right. Next week, we'll try and stump you. I really hope I do. I okay. got a couple awesome ones lined up, but that's for you to figure out. We'll move on into Accent or Ghost. Oh, yeah. A piece where we get Adam's view on many aspects of the drumming industry, and at the end, we'll get an approval, an accent, or a disapproval. A ghost. Let's do it. So, first topic up for accenting or ghosting, drum collecting. Drum collecting. Oh, man. I think I'll open this one up. People are going to hate me for this. I'm going to open it up with a ghost. We're ghosting drum collecting. Man, it's... It's not okay. Let me let me first like issue a pass for a certain type of person that can collect drums, and that is the studio drummer. If that's how you do it, uh, you know, if, if that's how you you approach the music industry, that is your career. I do think it makes sense that you would have multiple drums made of different woods, different sizes, different shells. 
just to achieve a variety of different sounds. You know, good buddy of mine, um, who is it? Uh, E-Man Cervantes, awesome, awesome drummer for Andy Grammer. He does a lot of studio work in addition to his touring career. And, you know, he's a really sought after studio guy. He's, he's performed on a lot of different albums for, for very, very high up artists, some of which he doesn't even really talk about, but he is, he's got some, some pretty big albums before. And he does have his own very high end studio with a bunch of awesome gear and he collects drums, not because he's necessarily a drum nerd, but because there are certain requests that a producer or an artist could have where, hey, can you get me this kind of sound? And he wants to be able to say yes. He wants the answer to that question to always be a yes, I can get you this organic vintage sound or yes, I can get you this giant fat rock 80 sound or I can get you the super modern cutting articulate, almost like a metal processed sort of sound. You know, in, in that position, how lame would it be if someone said, can you get me this type of drum sound? And you were just like, well, I don't really have drums that sound that way. Like that's that shouldn't be your answer to that question. So if, if that's your position, you're doing session work, studio work, and you need to have this, this wide selection of different sounds, then yes, you're the type of person that should probably collect a few drums, a few snares, and just have some sonic options in a studio. But if you are a touring drummer and that's your focus and it's kind of the only thing that you're doing is you're like rehearsing with your band and then you're touring with your band and playing shows. Or if you're an educator and you are just teaching a specific style of music or maybe not specific, you're just teaching um, all sorts of different things. You know, I, I don't know how much sense it makes to collect gear. And my fear a lot of times, and I see people get sucked down this wormhole, is that they end up spending exorbitant amounts of money collecting gear that ultimately doesn't really serve their career in any way. Like if, if you just play with, let's say, a cover band and you need one kit, that's what you really need, one kit that sounds good for a variety of different styles of music from like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Man, I just don't know why you would need four drum sets for that. I really don't. I, I get having a few snares. I think I own I own four snares and I own two drum sets, one of which I haven't played in many, many years. It's just a backup kit that I really don't need for any reason. You know, the way I look at it, I want one dope kit that can work for everything that I do. And that's how I personally see it. Anything beyond that, it just feels like... I don't know, man. It's it's not like guitars, right? Where like I understand a little more why people would own multiple guitars cuz you could have one wall that has 40 guitars on it and it's really easy to just pick one up yeah. and then plug that in and play it. But drums aren't like that, man. Like how often are you seriously going to break down your drum set and set up another one and then mic it and EQ it if you're doing all of that stuff? It just seems unrealistic and I think people get get sucked into that wormhole of collecting, and it's just like, man, there are better things to spend your money on, especially if you want an online career. Like, what about cameras? What about lenses? What about lighting? What about microphones? What about computers? What about interfaces? What about compressors? What about plugins? What about, right? There's so many other ways to spend that money. So for me, it's always been one super nice kit that I really like, that is versatile, can meet all of my needs, and anything past that is just, it feels a little greedy, it feels greedy, yeah. you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's like, it's like bacon. Like, I'll, if you eat more than three pieces of bacon, you're being greedy. You know what I mean? How many do you need? You need three pieces of bacon. Like, I know you want seven, but you probably don't need seven pieces of bacon. You know what I'm saying? I was going to say it's like collecting cars, but bacon, I it's guess, is a good analogy. <laughs> cars is a better analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, I understand you. There are, I can think of five cars that are dope. Yeah. Also, I need... 
one, maybe some people could argue that you need two. Come on, let's be real here, you know? Yeah, I've tried to justify that with with even the car thing, and it's hard. I have a giant Tundra. Yeah. Sucks. I get 11 miles to the gallon, so I got to deal with that. I also work from home, so it's not that big of a deal, and I do a lot of construction stuff here at the house, and so I need a giant truck. I've tried to argue with myself, like, what about a Prius? If I got, like, another, you know what I mean, the opposite. Yeah, but, but no. But don't I don't really, really need it. No. No, it's not worth it. Yeah. That's how I feel about snares. It's just like, come on, dude. Do you need another one? Like, you're going to, you can only play one at a time, right? It's one of those things. But I don't know. You wouldn't say that about, like, T-shirts. How many T-shirts do you need? You only wear one at a time. You still need, you definitely I mean, need more than one I mean, T-shirt. I mean, in reality, you need one T-shirt. That's it. Right, you really only need one outfit the rest of your life. Yeah, need, need, need. Is the important word. Yeah. Want is a different thing. Of course, yeah. you want four hundred t-shirts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's four hundred. Just a steep amount of t-shirts. I mean, okay. Let me tell you what I, I should explain. There is a type of person who I met when I worked at Sam Ash years ago. And these were the type of guys who did not want to practice. They didn't want to play. They were older. They normally had a very different career. So they were a doctor, lawyer, mechanic whatever and they retired and had a little bit of money and and their interest in the drum industry was collecting they just wanted to come in and spend a bunch of money and talk about drums and talk about the gear and the stuff and it was very materialistic where it's like but you're not even experiencing the drumming part right and and i really disliked that it felt like these guys got pulled down the wrong direction in the drum industry where they're just pure consumers but they're not really doing any of the music stuff and I, i really disliked that so that's kind of my fears. When people get go too far down the gear wormhole, if you're not using any of that stuff, it, it bothers me a little bit. So as a whole and personally, I, I'm going to ghost it. I'm going to ghost it. Buy a small amount of high quality things and then make it about the music again, right? Get back to the music, you know? There we go. Lovely answer. Next is just a little photo. Okay. A little screenshot photo in that folder. All right. Oh, good lord. Is this an 18 by 49? It's a 12 by 24. 12 by 24. Which is the opposite drum. of what you would do, right? It's typically 24 by well, 24. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you would think a 24-inch high kick drum that's 12 inches deep, almost a pancake kind of style. This is the opposite. This is a toilet paper tube. Yeah, this Uh is essentially (laughs) the the 12-inch rock toms that you hate made deeper than for a bass drum. So you have to hate this infinitely more than a 12-inch rock tom. Oh, man. Well, I do want to hear it. I do want to hear it (laughs) because I do know that, you know, I've thought before about, about... with my next kit that I would go deeper with a kick drum. I think I play 20 by 17 is the, or sorry, 20 by 16 is the SQ1. And there was a little phase in, I wanna say, what did Travis Barker, his signature kit, the ODP, Orange County Drums and Percussion? He had a 22. It was deep, right? Wasn't it really, really deep? 24? Or maybe it was a 22 by 22. It was like tubed out, yeah. right? I, I feel like, yeah, Orange County Drums and Percussion put out several kits like that. They were like tubed out. But I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think there's an irony like with toms. Sometimes toms sound good. You go back to the 80s when they had toms that were super deep, like 10 by 10 or 12 by 12. or Like you do get some weird, interesting tones out of them. It's just I don't have a lot of experience with drums that they make that deep. This is like comically deep. Why is it 12 inches for a kick drum? I think on that alone, we're gonna have to ghost it because a 12 inch kick drum is way too small. That's way too small. I mean, 16 
I mean, I've gotten dope sounds out of a 16 with the Sonar Safari. That's a 16-inch kick drum. Um, 18s can sound good, too. 20, for me, is like as big as I ever want to go. But 12 inches is a little ridiculous. Also, what kind of riser setup do you need for your bass drum pedal? Right? Because you can't. That's not really going to work. Hmm. This particular drum, I'm going to have to go. Do we know who makes it? Woodland Percussion. Woodland Percussion. You know, it's probably just experimental for them. I would imagine they're not trying to say that this can replace your kick drum necessarily. Mm -hmm. I do like the double-ended tube lugs. Those are are nice and sleek and modern. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a pretty drum. It's interesting, but I would say not the most practical. I also don't think they're trying to convince you that it's practical either. It's probably just something they did did to have fun. Yeah, I think it was maybe like a custom order um by a client and then they wanted a specific sound or just wanted to be funny yeah people with too much money interesting yeah yeah (laughs) somebody spent money on this that's wild who knows man maybe it sounds good i'm gonna i'm gonna ghost it not the attempt i understand we can experiment and have fun but uh yeah we're a little silly going 12 by 24 that is wild cool drum though it looks cool next up a little video for you okay this is the polyend perk Polly and Perk. Like the production on the video. Pistons in it? Wow, it's a little piston, right? What in the fuck is this thing? (laughs) (laughs) Man. Talk about a threat to the drum industry. Goodness gracious. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So, for those listening on audio, we should kind of talk through, like, explain what it is. Yeah. So, this is the polyend perk. It's essentially a the, the reverse of a drum trigger. It is a solenoid encased in a beater-shaped device that can be synced to MIDI information mm-hmm. to play acoustic instruments. Gotcha. Um, it, it doesn't only play cymbals and bass drums. It can play bongos. It can play congas. It can play cajones. It can play anything, really. Yeah. Right? And then sync with MIDI data on sequencers or synthesizers, anything. Andrew Huang did a video about it. Okay. Like a year ago, a little bit ago. Interesting. Uh, where man. he tested the limits of it and like, can I do it at 999 BPM? Sure. Like, it I, probably could beat human speeds, right? Oh, it absolutely can. Yeah. Uh, it absolutely can outperform any human being. The problem is it's 450 per beater. Yeah. And that's what they look like too, for those just listening. Yeah. It looks like a, like a really oversized drum beater like a giant black ball with a tube Mm -hmm. that comes out of the bottom of it and within that ball there's some sort of mechanical mechanism that fires like a piston yeah and so they have these beaters put on a kick snare and a hat like three individual of these oversized uh beater looking things and then those these beater devices are hooked up to they're controlled by midi and it fires a piston and literally strikes the drum Mm -hmm. but it strikes it with 
perfect accuracy and power and precision. And right? they're of course velocity it is. sensitive, so uh, you can ghost accent notes all day long. Yeah. Oh, man. So the advantage of this would be that you can program the drums, but then you you program a performance which is performed on acoustic drums, and then you record that. So it's a little best of both worlds in that you get the perfect performance. Of course, you're lacking the human touch, but not the human the human part of like that analog recording, right? Because you could still get a fully analog recording put in a room mic or, yeah, I mean, you would get all of the analog actual sounds of multi-tracking a kit. So it's in a weird middle ground because how many people are going to, gonna do that i mean i guess you would have to say if you were hiring drummers like you ran a studio and you were hiring drummers regularly you know you would invest in something like this and then you would just have to buy all of the drums but you have the studio and in theory you would not have to hire drummers anymore i mean possibly Mm. you can't you can't use mallets or any sort of like different kind of sticks to hit cymbals in any different way. You can't play a rind with any complicated patterns. That's true. To hit the bow, edge, and bell, you need three different beaters. You You're right. You can't You're open right. and close your hi-hats. Your bass drum isn't going to have like a foof sound to it because you're hitting it with this small it's I think small. it's like a half inch well cymbals little is a, piston cymbals might be the best example i'm glad you mentioned that because like a ride cymbal yeah you've got the flat part of the ride you've got the bell and then you've got the crashing on the edge i don't know how yeah you'd have to have three of these things and yeah yeah that, that's not really going to work too well so it does have some weird limitations to it yeah. it's probably why this video is just kicks near hat exactly yeah tight. you can't replace a drummer with these but it's very interesting yeah. To know that it can kind of like break human limitations. I mean, if you if your setup was this every single day for like, I don't know, a theme park gig. And yeah. You just had like a live drummer, you wouldn't need a live drummer anymore. Yeah. I mean, almost this would be like your understudy. Be like, if the drummer doesn't show up, be like, we got these little devices we yeah. can just throw on there and pro. Interesting. I, th- I, I, I'm fascinated at this in between gray area that they found where it is like semi-human in that we are still striking physical instruments like and creating like mm-hmm. audible acoustic sounds. It's not fully digitized, but it starts digital. The performance is digital. And then the the recording is more of like the analog human part. So it's interesting. I like that little gray area. It's fun to explore that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll give it the accent. This is pretty cool. And it's, it's compact. I mean, this is as small as you can make it. I'm amazed at how much power they can get out of that little mechanism. It seems mm-hmm. small to be that powerful, you know? Yeah, yeah, this is really, really cool invention. Yeah. This came out like five years ago, by the way. This isn't anything new. Interesting, uh, I've never seen it, never seen yeah. it. Yeah, this would have been a dope setup at NAMM. They probably had it. Oh yeah, yeah, well it was probably in the electronic instruments floor, mm. whatever that was. You're right, and you're for right. for those of you who like acoustic instruments, you hate them. <laughs> so you're not gonna go to that section but there's toys and fun stuff to be sure seen, sure so. yeah it's always like day four of nam the last days when you go to like the electronics part yeah. like the weird yeah the drum hall is its own little little area but uh i hope they had some sort of set nam is expensive too so a lot of startup companies can't afford to go to nam it's very mm-hmm. expensive to get a booth there um, but this is the kind of thing that you would find at NAMM. Be like, what in the hell is going on? Yeah, I think really the, cool. Yeah, I think the company is from the Czech Republic, too. Very cool, though, man. Yeah, I'll give it the accent. That's interesting. Really interesting drum tech example. Sweet. All right.
Well, it does it for replacing drummers. <laughs> for now. For now. We coming um, for you. We'll move on to real drummers. <laughs> Sleeper Spotlight. Sleeper Spotlight. Yeah. If you're not familiar with this segment, we introduce a drummer that y'all are sleeping on. And then we'll get Adam's opinions, impressions, and constructive criticism, if any. Yes, sir. Who first we, up, who we got Stefano Rudolini. Stefano. First video from him. Let's pop it up. What you got, brother Stefano? Tricky ostinato. I'm lost. <laughs> <laughs> you win this one, Stefano. Oh, man. <laughs> So good, so good. It's a puzzle. It's a puzzle yeah. is what it is. I, and there are some really fun... I've only done this a handful of times where like I just write... I've written a puzzle and practiced it where it's like that is probably only useful in like one or two songs in the world, exactly as it is. But in working out the puzzle where it's four limb independence, each limb has its own little thing to work out. It's kind of nice because it makes practice easy. Like, you know exactly what you have to do. So you you might spend several hours working out just the hands, and then you have to bring in one of the feet, and it, it's a whole puzzle, and you're just kind of assembling pieces together. And when you're done, it looks something like this, right? It's like an ostinato puzzle. Um, but it's it's cool, man. I do feel like you gain something by doing that. It's not just like a drummer game. It's like you you do get some weird independence out of it, but what I love about this is that it's representative of really intense practice. Like, you just oh, yeah. have to sit down and do the work. Yeah, he didn't wake up that morning and he went, I'm going to play this pattern exactly and I'm going to get the recording down. Yeah. Hours and hours of, like, oh, God, yep. muscle memory. You know who's got a big collection of these is uh, Johnny Mathar. Oh, oh, yeah. He's got a big collection of those, just, like, little puzzles that he's worked out. And I do think they serve your playing. I think you, you could get lost in the weeds on them where you're just working on something that's so obscure and all you have at the end of it is like this weird little thing that you can that you can play uh, but I've done a few of them with like Samba stuff before and it's weird man they, they do impact your playing in a positive way but that was really impressive I mean we'd have to watch that many more times to fully grasp what was going on um, but just the ostinato alone was very tricky I don't know exactly what that ostinato was but with the splash clothes built in there I mean he started off quite difficult that was sick that was sick. Sweet. Got another one from him. All right. Another one from Stefano. Little uh, JD Beck vibe. Yeah. Very JD Beck. It's it, it, it. Such a specific style, too. That's why I say that J.D. Mm -hmm. Beck thing. It's almost... It's a tough style, tough style to describe exactly what's going on in a style like that because it's weird. It's almost like you make the, the tempo very low and the subdivision very high. So, like, it's just active phrasing in quick 30-second notes. Mm -hmm. But it's not fully chopped out because the, that's kind of like the, the substrate of the groove is still in there. 
right? But when you have that many notes, there's a lot of like malleability in the groove where you can sort of take, you can do all these weird things within the subdivision when the subdivision has that many notes inside of it. And it's just this weird combination of like kind of choppy, but also really, really groovy. Like there's still this static substrate of notes that never really changes. And so it does have like that, the repetition of a groove where you can kind of get into a feel, but there's so much play inside of it because of the amount of notes that they're using with a high subdivision and a slow tempo. So it's cool, man. It allows for a lot of phrasing and he, but it's also, it's hard to unpack because it's like, well, so many things just happened in 30 seconds that like, oh, it's not like as, as cut and dry as someone who like plays a groove and then plays like a 30 second note chop. Like there's there's a lot more busyness to it. It's a very complicated um, substrate is the word I keep coming back to, but um, yeah, man, really, really good, good playing. It's such a specific style. I would love to know, Stefano, what are your influences? Like, who do you listen to to build in that style? I think J.D. Beck would be a safe his, one. His caption on that video was, uh, like, ending out a practice session with J.D. Beck vibes. Gotcha. Like, literally, I literally think that was the one, so I laughed. Gotcha. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, J.D. Beck is, is one of the guys that has really popularized that specific type of playing. Um, I would I'd be curious to know who J.D. Beck's influences are. Like, who would he cite as his own influences, right? Interesting. Man, that was killer. Absolutely. How many followers does he have? Do we know? Um, under 10,000. Under 10,000. Sure. Man, goodness gracious. Well, an absolute sleeper. Go check him out. That was killer. Yeah, go check out Stefano. And now we got Ty Ellender. Ty Ellender. Yeah. First video from him. We got some wild notation happening here. Let's see. Ooh. Pretty Ludwig. Man, really, really clean playing for sure. There was some advanced phrasing hidden in there too. Um, I felt like he was uh, tricking me at certain points because because uh, it started out really, really simple and then went like, we, the complexity just ramped up as we went on there for sure. Um, interesting, pretty pretty kit too. Ludwig, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so a vintage sounding kit, but not vintage playing. He was very modern in a lot of his playing for sure. So it's kind of a weird, weird hybrid, right? I mean, he's got all like, Zildjian K's kind of a classic legendary cymbal sound and then um yeah like an older kit with an older sound but then we got bludges all over the place and some very complex playing I am curious Ty did you improvise this playing and then notate it or did you notate this and then play it the latter would be more impressive i think if you had made all of this up and notated it and then performed that that would be way more impressive so i'm guessing that this was like improvisation and then you went back and notated it either way high level stuff man this is not um there were many many advanced phrases in there for sure the bludged being one of the easier ones i mean some of it was more of the like extending over the bar line with some of those odd groups but man that was really cool high level stuff man high level let's do the next one from ty yeah Ooh, rogers before we even play it i just got a the little thumbnail here 
the Rogers Big R was my first drum set. The first drum set I ever had. My mom found it at a yard sale for $75. She had no idea what it was. It was the kind with the three, it had a triangle of rack toms. No kidding. It was like this one little mounting mechanism that had a like a 10 inch, a 12 inch up at the top, and then a 13 inch over here. So 10, 12, 13, um, all at the top. Or maybe, maybe it was like 12, 13, 14. I can't remember, but it had a big R. Anytime I see a big R Rogers kit, that's what it reminds me of. So excited to hear this thing. Here we go, second one from Ty. What is on the floor, Tom? That sound. First of all, we should note his technique is so clean, so clean, very loose wrist, very, very, just an awesome grip. Uh, you know, his, his hands just look awesome. So I wanna mention that right away, super, super clean. Um, I wanna know what is the floor tom happening there? It looks like a normal head that's just totally worn out. I think it's something metal, like a like a pot lid. Maybe a pot lid, because oh. he's got an actual pot on yeah. the rack tom, um, which I'm kind of disappointed. I really wanted to hear the kit, but we <laughs> definitely didn't hear the kit. <laughs> um, or just, you know, modified sounds across the board. Um, really interesting playing, though, man, for sure. It's another one of those examples of, like, someone who is clearly into not just playing drums. He's very good at drums. Um, but also into, like, the manipulation of digital sounds, right? Mm -hmm. Into audio and just getting a, a weird mix. And I like that, man. I think it's a an interesting way to be creative and one that is, like, relatively new, at least in that, like, the consumer, like, not professionals necessarily can get into this stuff and begin experimenting. I'm not trying to say he's not professional by any means, but I mean, even 15 years ago, the idea that you would be able to get this creative by manipulating stuff inside of a DAW and buying all sorts of like strange microphones and triggers and plugins and like going down those rabbit holes used to be very expensive. It's, it wasn't something that everybody could do. So I love seeing some of these guys that are just into these like audio manipulations and it's it makes its way into their style. It's like part of the content that they make and, and what they put out. So I think it's really cool, man. But um, clean playing, clean playing from Ty. Do we know how many followers he has? Uh, very little, very little. I know he has a YouTube channel uh, and an Instagram. So check both of those out. Check them um, out, man. Yeah. Awesome player. Awesome player. Just Great very, drummer. very clean. Cool. Thank Good you, ones, brother. Yeah. Thank you, Stefano and Ty. Yes, sir. And if you have any sleepers that you think we're sleeping on or everybody else is sleeping on, email me at chris at orlandodrummer.com or comment below. We will roast them up. Yes. And now we move on to Q&A. Q&A. We ask questions. You guys ask questions. Yeah. We give the answers. These questions can come from anywhere. They can come from the InstaChops Instagram. They can come from YouTube. They can come from the forums of OrlandoDrummer.com. Or you can email me directly at Chris at OrlandoDrummer.com. Send you nudes. Please. 
don't amend <laughs> that statement. Uh, please don't send lewd photos to the email only questions. <laughs> First question, Nick Searle. Oh, okay. Nick uh, Seer. Yeah, Searle? It's Seer L-E. So yeah, I recognize Searle. his name. Yeah, yeah. What's up, Nick? Uh, I play heavy music with a 22-inch kick now, but heard you talk about your 20-inch kick briefly, which made me wonder if I should downsize. What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. So I like 20 for a few reasons. The reason I I, re- I I did have a 22 before. I had a DW Performance Series. That was my last kit. I had a 22-inch kick drum. And by all means, for a very long time, 22 was like a standard. My whole life growing up, all kits seemed to they came with a 22 inch kick drum, and I thought anything below that was like getting into this puny territory. But having worked in a studio for you know 10 plus years, I don't know, man. I just found that 20s give me all of the punch that I need. But you know, sonically, the difference isn't isn't going to be that massive, right? Like if you're putting an EMAT on them or whatever your go-to kick drum head is, you know that extra two inches in a kick drum, it. For recording purposes, I don't know that it's going to make that big of a deal. From a 20 to a 24, that, that that's definitely a bigger difference for sure. You could get, for sure, some more low end out of a 24. But if the difference between a 20 and a 24 is just a little bit of low end, like I got a little EQ knob right here I can just turn up, mm-hmm. a little, you know, hit him with the 250K, you know what I mean? Like you, you can just, you can compensate for that. And, and get plenty of boom out of a 20. Tune it a touch lower, adjust your mic placement a little bit, slight EQ adjustment, and boom. You're kind of back into that same territory, or at least territory where nobody's gonna be able to, to, to discern this. I think one thing that I dislike is that people talk about kick drum rebound, which to me is like, it falls into this like, old wives tale, like mythological territory of like, I have never once, dealt with kick drum rebound that was in any way so extreme that it made me want to change the size of my kick drum. I've owned a 16-inch Sonar Safari. Um, that was a 16-inch kick drum. Baby, baby kick drum. It didn't feel any different to me than a 24-inch kick drum when I had a, a Tama Superstar Hyperdrive. Or there's, there's some super old videos on this channel um, of that kit. They really didn't feel any different. To me, the, the pedal settings could just override whatever rebound there was. So if anybody's going down that road, I would say don't. Don't think about that. It's not really that big of a deal. There are some um, there are some people I know, I'll just start out, two idiots, Craig Reynolds and Eric Improta, who play giant kick drums. I think, I think they both play, <laughs> well, Craig I know has talked about a 24-inch before. Yeah. Um, he swears by it, but you're talking about a guy that does a lot of live shows. You know, live, I get it a little bit more, but then that's also contrasted with you got to carry that thing. So for me, man, 20 is this sweet spot where I think when we get down to 18, you know, you are going to be losing a substantial amount of low end compared to a 22. It's going to be a pretty big difference, you know. But a 22 for me, it was right on the line of tom placement. That that was really like mm-hmm. the kicker for me is, is putting my 10-inch tom comfortably where I wanted it and even having the option to put like a 12-inch tom. You know, that it was really rough with a 22. And so a 20, for me, it just gave me all of the boom in the low end that I needed. I didn't feel like I was missing anything. And it's smaller, it's easier to move. Um, and there is another element of this, and that would be it's what you're creating. You know, if I was recording um, 
classic rock albums for a living, then I would probably want a 24 in the studio, right? Just to get that sound or to start with the correct sound and not have to manipulate it. But for me, I mean, 90 plus percent of my content is going to be consumed on some sort of small speaker playback device, right? I mean, I make content, drum content that goes on the internet. Most of it's watched on YouTube, a lot of it on OrlandoDrummer.com, Instagram, through phone speakers. So the reality is, if I had a 26-inch kick drum, you wouldn't hear any of that. All that low end would just disappear or never even make its way through your speakers because tiny speakers aren't that good at at, uh, putting out really low end sounds, low frequencies. So for me, 20 is the sweet spot. If I had to go in any other direction, I would actually go down. I would go down to an 18 before I went to a 22 for all of those reasons. So that's why I play a 20. I would say unless you're very specifically going in a rock direction um, and you're you're really, really interested in getting like a, a true, organic, authentic, big rock kick sound, then 20's fine. It's totally fine. And it comes with a long list of pros um, in that you know, it's smaller, it's easier to place things around it, it's not gonna have as much um, boominess to deal with in in audio, so it's not gonna resonate as much, you get a nice punchy sound, which is good for phone speakers. So there's a lot of personal subjective things to consider here, but that's why I go with the 20, so I would say, you know, most people, you're not gonna be missing that much. Thank you, Nick, for the question. Yeah, man, that's a good one. Next question, Drew Harper. Drew Harper. After close micing every drum and using two overhead mics, what should be the next instrument? Should I mic the hi hat, snare bottom, or add a room mic? Huh. That, that's a that's a great question, Drew. That's a really really good question because I've been in that position before, right? Everybody starts with close mics, and then you get your two overheads, and then you listed three options, which are probably all the next right choice. So it, you said snare bottom, hi hat, or room mic was the third one. Man, oh, that's so tricky. So I would say, let's go process of elimination. Hi-hat, I would say no. And and it's style dependent. If you're recording hip-hop, probably the hi-hat mic would be the next one or the snare bottom. That's a tough call. It depends on how much you like your snare sound right now. You can definitely get awesome snare sounds without a snare bottom. Personally, I do like it. Uh, I like having a snare bottom mic and I use it. But... You know, if you heard it in the mix, like if I opened Logic and showed you the actual volume of the hi-hat bottom mic, it's like almost not even there. So it's contributing 5% to the snare sound that I'm getting. I would say that my overheads are contributing way, way more. Now, for me, I use three overhead mics. Um, My middle mic... I use it not really to capture cymbals, but more to capture like drum tones. So I can position my left and right overhead mics to, to grab my cymbals. And then the center mic is, is not really to grab cymbals. It's much more to grab um, sort of the picture of the center of the kit and get some drum tones there. I balance that against a crotch mic, which kind of does the same thing. So, huh. To be honest with you, of all of those... I'd say not the hi-hat mic. I I get that one out of the way. So between a snare bottom and a room mic, you know, it would be easier for me to tell you if I could hear your your sound because you might have a really complete overhead picture. And so adding more of that room tone might not be super necessary and the snare bottom might actually solve the problem. So, So I'd say it's kind of between those two. If you like your snare sound, I would say don't worry about that snare bottom microphone. It is not necessary. I've done plenty of high-end recordings, even in other studios with other people, where we didn't use a snare bottom. You don't have to have it, and even if you do, you're just barely going to use it. So I'd say the safe recommendation, depending on your mix, is probably going to be that room mic because 
man, a high-end room mic placed in the correct spot of the room, man, it's just gonna capture something that is very different from all of the microphones that you currently have on your kit. Because if all you have right now are two overheads and close mics, which are all of the fundamentals, man, there is definitely some like, some boomy, spacious, ambient sound that you could add underneath the entire mix that you have, and it will really impact the character um, of your entire mix. So I would say you're gonna have the most fun and probably get the most benefit out of that room mic. The snare bottom, you know, if you don't like your snare sound, that might be the one to go with next, but you will be disappointed in how little you use it because you're just gonna be like, eat on the fader and then that's it. Any more than that, it gets tinny and scratchy and a little weird. So if you like your snare sound and you don't really care to like manipulate that too much from here, then I think room mic, that's probably gonna be the best one. It's fun to talk that out because it's, you know, I've had, I've had them all before. I've had all of those mics, but I would say, the room mic, the, the spaciness is probably gonna be the most impactful of all of those three. But that's a great question, man, really cool. Cool. Thank you, Drew. That's all we have for Q&A. All righty. That's all I have for the podcast. You done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm fired. Uh, email your applications for the co-host of the Orlando Drummer Podcast, Chris at OrlandoDrummer.com. Oh, yeah. If you actually have questions for the podcast, don't be afraid to send them on Instagram. Comment below on YouTube. Go to the forums of OrlandoDrummer.com or send me questions at Chris at OrlandoDrummer.com. Yeah, man. And that'll do it. So I'll leave it to you to close it out. All right. So, yeah, you know, it's funny. This week I stumbled across an older video that I made, but it's one of my favorite videos that I've ever made. It doesn't have a lot of views either, which is probably why I wanted to, to mention it here to close out. Um, it's called Four Phases of Drumming, or rather... That's the thumbnail. The thumbnail says four phases. It's actually called My Philosophy on Becoming a Great Drummer. And... It basically, it was a correction to a video, I won't explain the whole thing, because you should go go watch it, go watch it, but um, it was a correction to a video I made that was called 10 Levels of Drumming, which was very video gamed out, it was corny, there are not 10 levels to drumming, but it, it, it was a fun, entertaining video. But as an educator, it drove me crazy, because a lot of people took it serious, they were like, well, I'm on level six, how do I get to level seven? I was like, no, 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 it was a joke, you were supposed to laugh and then actually go back to practicing drums for real, but... Uh, so I made this video that was sort of like, okay, if there are levels or phases or like chapters to becoming a great musician from, you know, totally unknowledgeable and not having any skill to being a, a, a fluent professional in whatever instrument you play, in my eyes, I see it as though there's four of them. I'm not going to break them all down here because go watch that video. I did a, did a better job there. But... I think it is important to recognize which of those four phases you might be in because there's all these weird gray areas in between those phases and sometimes I think drummers might not might not know where they are exactly. And I'll tell you one of the most important phases that I look back on now and I see drummers in this phase all the time now that I'm so far removed from this first phase of drumming which I call the honeymoon phase. Um, you know, I'm envious of drummers that are in that position, you know. And I understand when you first start studying drums, you're likely very excited and overwhelmed and infatuated with this instrument. And you know, I, just, I want people to keep that alive as long as possible. Studying an instrument comes with a huge amount of stress. It, there's a lot of pressure, um, there's a lot of anxiety when you see how good certain people are and how many decades you are away from being that good and all of the work that's in between um, you know, where you are and where you wanna be. 
that comes with a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety. And there is something about me as I've gotten older where I look back at when it wasn't like that, when it was just purely like passion-fueled, totally motivated, like almost effortless to sit down and play all the time. Didn't have to think about any of that stuff. And so speaking to the people that might be in that phase, like, man, hang on to that as long as possible. It doesn't always feel that way. You know, it it does get uh, it does get more challenging. And in some ways, it gets less fun. Um, of course, you know, hard work is part of life, right? Like sometimes you got to practice things you don't want to practice. And sometimes you got to, you got to live with some, uh, some frustration and just sort of sit in the, the suckiness that is learning how to do something that you don't currently know how to do. But anyway, I just wanted to briefly mention that video because I, I rewatched some of it and I'd forgotten a lot of the things that I said, but I really do like that summary of these four different phases. And I think identifying where you are on your drumming journey is an, is, is an important thing to do. You know, it lets you know where you are and it helps you orient yourself towards where you want to go. And um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that video, man. It was um, a project I'm really proud of. I like a lot of my thoughts that, that I put down there. So I will, um, if you're watching on YouTube, I'll link that somewhere around here or check the description of this podcast and I'll link that video there. But it's a good one. Hopefully it'll give you some food for thought for the week. Um, and yeah, I selfishly wish it had more views. It's a dope video. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you being here, brother. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, one other thing, we'll leave people with this. Any suggestions for people you'd like to see as guests on the podcast? We're looking into booking some other people um, to hop on and do interviews, even if it's just via Skype or Zoom or whatever the kids are using nowadays. We'd love to have some people on. So if you're on YouTube or anywhere, drop us a, drop us a line. Who do you want to see as a future guest? It'd be really cool. Anybody. Hell yeah. Any, anybody. Yeah. Anybody. Just, you know. Whatever, an infant. They don't even have to be a drummer. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a drummer, not a drummer. My plumber's on next week, so we'll see you there. Cool, all right, all peace. Right. Bye. <laughs>